0: Hello everybody, this is Vincent Ayello with the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We are taking a break from our regular programming this week. I know I told you there would not be an episode on April 1st, but I decided to take the highlights of two recent Facebook Live question and answer segments and stitch them together with some minor editing for content for your consideration. A couple reasons I did that. Number one, I know some of you rely on this to get through your commute or other chores. And number two, some of you, like my brothers, still do not have Facebook profiles. So here they are with just like I said, a little bit of editing and we will be back to our normal programming on April 11th. Until then, enjoy. While we're waiting, I will tell you six, it looks like, that this morning I interviewed Chuck Sweeney, a Vietnam era A4 pilot who won three Distinguished Flying Crosses. And so that was a really interesting interview. And I'm looking forward to getting that edited and put out for you. Other than that, future episodes I'm working on right now, I have one that's recorded on aircraft maintenance, and I am planning a three-part series. I think I've been talking about this for a while, about carrier operations. I have an aircraft carrier friend, aircraft carrier executive officer, and that's the number two guy, uh, friend, who I'm hoping will come on and do part one. And that will be everything about aircraft carriers, including the different colored jerseys and what they mean up on the flight deck. And then I have two LSOs or landing signal officers uh, lined up for the second two parts, one on day landings and one on night landings. So hopefully those will come out here probably in April. Although just a heads up, I'm planning on taking April 1st off. Uh, That is the End of my kids' spring break. So, we're hoping to go skiing or otherwise just hang out and uh, spend some time together. So, I may not have an episode, probably won't have an episode on April 1st, which is Easter anyway, uh, but we'll be back at it on the 11th. And of course, we do have the one coming up on the 21st of March, which is my mother's birthday. All right, so here's a question from Mike Downey who asks uh, With the Hornet platform taking over the roles of so many other specialty aircraft, did we end up losing any capability? by consolidating into a single platform. Yes, Mike, I believe we did. I think we talked about this on an earlier uh, episode. So let's just talk refueling, for example, one of the episodes we've had already. The Super Hornet with five tanks, one of them in the middle being the buddy store where the basket comes out, it can carry about 25,000 pounds of fuel. Uh, however, it can't give all that fuel away because it burns a tremendous amount of that while it is flying around with all that fuel and all that weight and all that drag from those drop tanks. So when the Super Hornet took over the role of the S3 in so much as the aerial refueling tanker, we definitely lost some capability there because while, this, uh, while the Viking, the S3, couldn't carry as much fuel, it could give more away of what it had, So, plus it could stay airborne longer and uh it, it it could just it was a much more efficient aerial refueling platform for around the carrier. So all right. Um but let's see, let's not walk away from that one just yet. Um you know the F fourteen, when it went away and ostensibly replaced by the Super Hornet as well, it has some capability that we no longer have, and that is that super long range detection and super long range missile capability with the AIM-54 Phoenix, and so we don't have that anymore. Um, and But, you know, the Hornet, Super Hornet, they're good at a lot of things and just arguably not terrific at refueling or fleet defense like the F-14 and a couple other things. But, you know, it's the way that the world is going right now. We are consolidating into fewer aircraft, makes the training for the people easier. And by people, I mean both the pilots and the maintenance crews it also makes the supply situation a little easier on the ship when we deploy on an aircraft carrier and i assume it's true also for air force squadrons when they uh, deploy if they deploy with you know an f-16 and an f-15 squadron might have different parts that are needed but uh if they were for example to both deploy with just f-16 or just just f-15 then it would be obviously just that one set of parts so it does simplify things and uh, i think it's the way of the future but of course the f-35 is coming along as well. So we'll see what happens with it. Uh, Let's see, here is a question. This is from Gareth. If you could fly an aircraft from another nation's armed forces, which would you choose? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, Gareth, I know you're from the UK, but I'm sorry, I think I have to say uh, something in the Flanker family. Probably the Su-35 with its canards in the front that uh, move and also the thrust vectoring. Uh, That would be pretty cool. Now that is a much bigger aircraft, but I still think that is one of the just ultimate fighters. Certainly it was the Goliath that we always used to talk about having to face because of its full capacity, its long range, and its weapon systems. Uh, that was the the Goliath that we often spoke of. So it would be fun to fly that and, and and see if our estimation was correct, frankly. So thanks. Um, all right, so from the U.K., you bet I'd love to fly the Eurofighter. Uh, but if they were lined up, I think I know which one I'd jump in first, sorry to say. All right, Mike asks, what are your thoughts on the future of military aviation with regards to UAVs? You know, Mike, I, that is a good question. You know, When you think back, you know, what movie just came out? Uh, Blade Runner, right? So Blade Runner came out, what, 30 years ago in the 80s? And we all thought we'd have these... Enormous metropolises with flying cars and all these other things. And look at us in the measly 2010s. Uh, we're no further along than we were there, just more gadgets and gizmos to uh, occupy our time. So I, I don't know. What, what I've mentioned on a different podcast, it might've been Gareth's, was I. what I see happening is UAVs will come along more so than they already have in naval aviation, which is my forte, I suppose. And they will take up some of those roles that right now we have people doing that maybe they don't need to be doing. So reconnaissance, surveillance, aerial refueling, loitering, uh, just being a presence, uh, maybe flying over the strike group in tight waters like the Strait of Hormuz. Um, so I think, though, at some point, I, I don't know if this is true. This is just Jello offering a guess that it's possible that you could end up with a UAV wingman so that you could have, so for example, an F-18, maybe even a two-seater, and the backseater, besides his normal duties, is also involved in controlling the other UAV uh, who's maybe a mile away, carrying more missiles, a bigger radar signature, a bigger IR signature. So it's, it's not just a missile tank for us, but it's also a beacon, if you will, in case we're being targeted, so it gets killed before the two air crew do in the super orbit. Don't know if that will happen or not. I think you could also have strike aircraft that you could program to go drop bombs somewhere as long as nothing changes, and the bombs they're carrying can get through weather or any other kind of changes, then, you know, you could see that as well. But for air-to-air, I think you're going to want a human brain in that for a long time, at least from my vantage point. Uh, Ryan Wayne did you ever engage in a dogfight with a tomcat at nas valley yes i did several (laughs) so i went through top gun in 2000 when f-14 crews were still going through and as part of that training sometimes we would fight the f-14 and sometimes we'd have f-14s with us and if at the end of the mission we had a little extra fuel we could do what was called an alternate mission which is you look over at your buddy he looks over at you you switch frequencies and you find a place and you say three, two, one, fights on and you turn and you swirl around and it's it's great fun. I do miss that. Uh, so yes, good aircraft. Um, I would say in a dogfight, the F-18 typically had the advantage, especially once, you know, if you were at long range, the F-14 can outstick you as we would call it with the Phoenix. But once you're in the visual arena, that huge aircraft is not too difficult to lose sight of because if you lose sight, you lose the fight. So it wasn't difficult to keep sight. Smoky engines, once the wings came forward, it was almost over because it had as much of a hard time as we did in the F-18, um, adding energy back on. So it wasn't quite as good also in a slow speed fight as the F-18. So uh, generally, if the two pilots were equally capable, then the F-18, I would think, would have the advantage. So... Uh, Jello, your interview with Bill Driscoll was amazing. Keep up the good work, sir. Thanks, Steve. You know, it's funny. It's actually one of the first interviews. I've known Bill a long time. It was actually one of the first ones. I was nervous, and I'll tell you why. Um, I wanted to do right by you guys. I really wanted to ask the questions I think you would want to hear the answers to. Uh, I wanted to respect him and all he's been through. So I don't know if you noticed it. My voice started quivering just a little bit at the end of the introduction, uh, and I just tried to power through it and and hope that nobody noticed. And again, now I've pointed out my own mistake, but, you know, I I enjoyed it. And uh, if you weren't here at the beginning, I I said a few minutes ago, gosh, we've already been at this 13 minutes that on uh, this morning, I had a chance to interview a gentleman also of Willie D's era who earned three distinguished flying crosses flying an A4 in Vietnam. And, again, it was just incredible to be in his presence and hear the stories of what he had to do. So we'll work on that episode and get it out soon. So, all right, thanks for your question, Steve. Uh, Dave, biggest difference between military and commercial flying, obviously besides equipment? Dave, the biggest difference is boredom. (laughs) Uh, Didn't get too much of that in a fighter. I do get it in the airline, not to say that we're up there being bored and sleeping behind the closed doors. We are, as you well know, doing our duties and doing it safely. Uh, The last fatality, knock on wood, in the United States' uh, major airline system was Air Asiana in San Francisco a few years back, and believe it or not, if you've seen video of that, nobody died when that airplane hit the seawall and tumbled it wasn't until a young lady escaped from the burning wreckage and got run over. I shouldn't laugh about that, but it's just sad. I guess God really needed her. Um, got run over by a fire truck. So the, uh, the boredom, the lack of excitement, which is good for you passengers is the biggest difference. The other thing, and again, I, I think I talked about this on Mike's aircrew interviews, um, inter- interview that came out on uh, YouTube and his website yesterday was just the sense of purpose and belonging and patriotism and honor not that there's no not that there's dishonor in being an airline pilot but I do miss being part of something special and that is why I started this podcast because the fact that we have 10 folks that would sit and listen to me ramble for 15 minutes it's it's honoring I I am I'm touched I enjoy it I hope you do too and uh, so we'll, we'll keep doing it so all right uh Jason How did the various versions of the Hornet behave behind the boat? Which behaved the best, easiest to trap, which behaved the worst? Um, Good question. I found the regular Hornet, of course, that was my upbringing, if you will, was relatively stable, but because it was more maneuverable, it was a little more flighty in the burble. And we'll talk about what the burble is. I think I talked about it with Mike on AirCoup interviews, Um, but it's just that little disrupted air sorry i'm part italian so you might get a little of that um, it's that disrupted air right behind the boat and because it's got smaller wings and it's a little more maneuverable means it's a little more easy to disrupt so it was pretty common to have it do something funny at the last minute in fact i'll tell a quick sea story so as you'll learn on the upcoming series on um, carrier landings the landing signal officers grade every landing that you do and if they have no comments on the different parts of the landing that's good well at night i used to have what i what my friends would call the jello one arrival so your grade starts out at the start and then there's a position in the middle and then you have in close at the ramp well the jello one arrival was no comments out here just not enough power in close low at the ramp no grade one wire which no grade is like getting an F, frankly, and so it was just because I would get in that burble, and I would not anticipate the power loss, and by the time I felt it happening, I'd add power quickly, and it was too late, and those stubby little wings would dump me right into that first wire every time, so that became kind of a joke. Um, When I later flew the Rhino, I noticed it didn't have as much trouble with that, but if something else happened, and you ended up giving it a little shot of power in close, well, it wasn't too common to have the opposite happen, which is, those wings pick up a bunch of lifties and over you go right over those wires and end up boltering. And that may be what happened that night. I think I told, I forget what episode, the story about, I was the last one to trap as the tanker and ended up going around and making everybody wait on me. So, uh, I would say overall the super Hornet is a little more forgiving behind the ship. So thanks for that question. All right, Jan. Hello, Jello. Can you briefly describe the difference between the fa 18, a, and a plus? (laughs) Well, here's where, see, usually when I make comments like this, I can edit them out later, uh, but I'll do it anyway. Um, You know the 40-year-old lady next door whose frame is getting older, but her face suddenly and other parts of her start to look really good? (laughs) I'm sorry, that's a terrible analogy, but that's kind of what it is. You take the old frame of an F-18A and you put some upgrades on it. (laughs) <laughs> sorry um like like um, let's let's stick with the airplane here uh, like new radar new radar warning receiver new displays new systems and general weapon systems and uh, software and it allows the older frame to do the newer, missions, or at least the advanced missions, because the regular F-18A couldn't carry an AMRAM. It could only carry Sidewinder, and of course, the side, uh, that's not what I meant to say. Sidewinder, yes, but Sparrow, AIM-7 Sparrow. The F-18A+, and the A++, and all the derivations, uh, allowed it to carry the, uh, the amram the AIM-120. So that is uh, one of many differences. You, t- you take the older aircraft airframe, put the newer technology in it, and off you go. Thanks for the question. Uh, let's see, you had more though. And what does this updated A still lack to seize, if any? You know, there's only so much you can do. <laughs> Forget the uh, analogy from before, please. Uh, there's still only so much you can do with the older airframes. So some of the hydraulics and other systems will be the older systems. Some of the um, the guts of, of the aircraft, So. Whether it's, and I'm struggling to think of an exact example here, like so, whether the generators changed or not, and the older ones were finicky, I don't remember. Uh, But that could be, for example, something that was true, um, if in fact it was. I'm I'm starting to talk in a circular argument here. I apologize, but for the most part, the A plus and a C next to each other are virtually comparable. So, good question, and I hope everyone will forgive me for my uh, analogy there. Chris, two questions. Why did VF-103 switch from the Sluggers to the Jolly Rogers? I don't know the answer to that, Chris. I think, from what I've heard, is that when VF-1 was the Jolly Rogers, maybe? I could do a quick Google search, or someone can for me uh, here, and uh, throw in in an update. But when the squadron that was known as the Jolly Rogers in the F-14 went away... It was my understanding that the F-14 community, which at that time was transitioning to both the two- and the one-seat F-18 Super Hornet, that they decided, no way, we've got to keep this logo around, and the, uh, the oh gosh, what's the name of it? It's just the Jolly Roger, you know, the, the skull and crossbones. So one of the squadrons switched over, and I think that's why, in this case, it looks like 103 uh, did that. So they gave up the sluggers, but took the Jolly Rogers, it, and I think that's why. Uh, why did the Navy flip some squadrons to single-seat jets when the Tomcat went away but maintain some two-seater squadrons? Because we didn't need as many two-seat squadrons, and I don't like to denigrate NFOs, and I hope that comment didn't come across as such. But in a, in a modern air wing, one F-18F two-seat squadron is sufficient. Because for the most part, as I said in an earlier episode, the E and F are basically the same, with the exception of the FAC-A Forward Air Controller, Forward Air Controller Airborne mission, which requires a two-seater. So the F-14 was only two-seat. So if you had two F-14 squadrons, they were both two-seat with pilots and, and RIOs. But once they converted them, um, again, not to denigrate RIOs or Wizzos, when you... Take a two-seat squadron and put it into a one-seat squadron. It's fewer people, which means um, less cost for pay, less payout if a mishap happens. I know they don't think about that. At least they shouldn't. And maybe I'm wrong, but theoretically, uh, it's it's two visits to somebody if there's a mishap instead of one. It's two bunks in a stateroom on the ship. It's more food. It's more uh, flight suits. It's more everything. Uh, So they didn't need to send all of those to seats. To, to sorry, my wife is texting. Let me just make sure nothing's on fire. Um, so yeah, the it, it was a cost thing and some bean counter somewhere decided here's the best mix. And what you didn't ask, but I'll add to your question, uh, Chris, was that in fact, a lot of NFOs ended up having to either transition to something else, or in I think some cases saying goodbye and uh, heading out the door. So it was sad for them, but it, uh, it again, it's not personal usually. All right, Mike, again, thoughts on the F-35C deploying into the fleet and how it will be different for today's pilots. Um, You know, Mike, this was one aircraft that I never really got read in on, meaning you get all the secret briefs in the vault and you find out what it can do and can't do. It started coming around when I was at 3rd Fleet not flying. And then once I got to Fallon for my penultimate tour, There were some briefs and I could have gone to them and frankly just didn't because I knew I was a short timer at that point. And then once I got here to the depot at North Island, it wasn't in my scan or scan volume or field of view. So... From what I understand, it's a very capable aircraft, and I think it's going to do very well fitting in with the F-18E and F. And I think a lot like the F-22 does for the Air Force, there may be some time when it's kind of sitting back with its systems and detection capability, and it's calling the shots almost like the, uh, if you watch football, I use football analogies a lot, you got the guy up in the booth who's got his binoculars and headset and everything else, and he's making uh, calls, if you will, on the headset down to the coach and and letting them know what's going on. So I I think the F-35 could do some of that as well. But it does have stealth. It does have some increased capability. So we'll see. I, I don't know. I'm the wrong guy to answer for that. But I do have brainstormed on my list of topics for future episodes, someone who has some experience in that to come on the show and talk about it because i'm not the expert and that's also true for air force i'm really trying hard to get some air force folks and i've reached out and we have some marine corps folks that we will be bringing on the show soon as well and even uh this past weekend at the uh, el centro air show that i went to the first show for the blue angels uh, i saw some coast guard pilots there with their helo and i thought about showing up and giving one my business card and saying, Hey, I got this podcast and want one of you to come on. But I I don't like drawing attention to myself. So I figured when the time comes, I'll, I'll go find somebody and hopefully they'll come on. All right. Uh, let's see. What else did you ask? Do you wish you could have flown it? You bet. Sure. Uh, it's pretty cool airplane from what I hear. It's got a lot of capabilities. So yeah, would love to have flown it, but uh, it was just not in the cards for me. Um, I'm guessing it might be a bit Easier, more comfortable to fly. Well, there's a lot you have to learn with the systems on that aircraft. It's you know gone are the days of pull back and the trees get smaller, push forward the trees get bigger. Nowadays, you are a system programmer. You have to know all about the aircraft and the weapon system. I mean, you did before, but it's just gotten more complicated. So. It might be easier to fly, just like modern-day cars are easier to drive with electronics and the end of lock braking and all that that we've talked about. But I, it's, I don't know that it's easier to fly from the point of view of cerebrally. Uh, let's see, Chris, what do you think of Magic Carpet? Don't know enough about it. What I do know is when I first read the word Magic Carpet and found out that was a six, eight, 10, 10, eleven letter, whatever. Acronym, I thought that alone should have been an uh, achievement medal for somebody. From from what I've heard from talking to my friends is it's like cheating. It takes away, I don't want to say skill, but I don't know. Um, but a lot like, again, the anti-lock braking, it, it makes carrier landings that much easier. So with that, you could ask, is that a good thing? Yeah, because, you know, I had a heads-up display for all my 705 landings, and Did I ever do a landing without one? I don't think so. So yeah, all 705. And, you know, the F-14 guys before the B upgrade and the D and the A-4 guys and the A-7 guys and all the Vietnam guys would probably scoff at me and say, you had a heads up display. That was cheating. So anything that makes it easier is great. And as long as they maintain a modicum of skill to be able to do it if magic carpet is not working, uh, just like we would practice in the simulator, not really behind the ship of a no HUD approach, then, hey, I'm all for it because anything that keeps us safer, them safer now, is is good in, in my in my boat. So, uh, boat, get it. VF84, was that who the Jolly Rogers was, Chris? Uh, VF84 became 103. Okay, uh, thanks for clarifying that. Uh, good to hear you in, in your interview with Mike um, that you will focus on PEPs and service exchanges. Yes, I definitely want to get someone, in fact, many people who have you know, Navy went and did something with the Air Force or overseas and vice versa. So look for that in the future. I think I've already said this. I've got dozens and dozens of ideas. And if you have ideas for episodes, let me know also. But I I have several months, probably at least a year's worth of content that I'd like to do. So we'll see how it goes. Um, Right now I have I think about four episodes recorded and ready to go. One of them is on the C5 Galaxy, and I don't plan on running that one until I start down the road getting into all the different aircraft that we covered in episode eight. So, might work through the As, maybe have an episode on the A10, and then maybe go into some Bs if I can find some Air (laughs) Force. Oh, there's a Freudian slip. Air Air Force folks to uh to to join me and talk about the B1252 etc. So uh if we get around to the C5 we'll we'll play that one and then uh what else do I have? I've got like I said before I've got the maintenance one I just did the uh distinguished line cross this morning and that might be it. I did have an episode recorded last summer when I thought I could get this launched sooner with the Tailhook Association and I want to reach out to those guys again and get their story because many of you if the news have had their way. Only no tailhook for the 1991 scandal, and it's so much more than that. So I want a chance for them to tell their story and why there is an association and that it keeps going all these years later. All right, uh, let's see. Have you ever tried to do an exchange tour? Uh, no, I didn't, jan Just the way my career went, it just never worked its way in there. There was a time I thought I might get to do a tour for a headquarters in Belgium after my department head tour, in the hopes that I would eventually screen for command uh, but that opportunity was taken off the table so I went and kept flying instead so that worked out great All right. uh, so anyway Mario was saying I loved the episode with Willie D thanks, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback about that Uh, being an aviation nerd, I loved it I hope you are okay with me reading this by the way Uh, I have an idea for an episode how about talking about the F-14 with the highest time pilot Commander Snort Snodgrass I heard he's in the air show circuit still also loved the part about the book's in the last episode. Any idea where we can get the digital version of Duke's book and specific, uh, especially Eric Hartman? Um, I don't know of any digital. You could check audible.com through um, Amazon, but I don't know if they're there. So take a look. Let us all know if you would. Uh, I don't know Snort Snodgrass. I don't know if he has a son, uh, Bus Guy Snodgrass. I could be, but I do know him. Uh, If you want to make an introduction, if you happen to be in touch with him or you could even just send him a note and say, Hey, uh, you need to talk to jello and we'll get you on the show uh, we, we can reach out to him absolutely yeah again we're always looking for people to come on the show i do know some f14 folks and i will look to get some of them on there all right should do an episode about great aviation books movies and stuff you know what i want to do uh, thanks mario i want to get either sunshine or maybe uh, ferg back on here apparently you guys love them uh, as much or more than the others and just I don't know, maybe open a beer or a glass of wine and, and just sit and just be funny for a while, uh, which tends to happen when you have any of those beverages. And just just like put a bunch of movie names in a hat and pull one out and say, ah, Final Countdown. Okay, what was the best part? What was the worst part? Where was it real? Where was it fake? I mean, gosh, Final Countdown, Top Gun, Iron Eagle, Behind Enemy Lines don't even put me on the hot shots. Come on. That's one. Uh, we could put all those in there and, and cover all those. And I know I just missed a ton. So, uh, there's, there's a more. Are any squadrons more respected or certain one pilots want to join? Love the show. Yes, but it comes and goes. So there are certain squadrons that just seem to have a stink on them and I won't name one, but I was in one. Um, and it's just, I don't know what it is. It's just, it gets a reputation. And because of their reputation, it doesn't get the right people assigned to it, it doesn't get the parts support it needs, and it's just the black sheep for a while. And it's just the way it goes. Some squadrons are the golden child, golden children, and they get the right people, they get the aircraft first, they get the parts, and, yes, that is just how it goes. Um, don't know what it is. It usually takes years to overcome. It can start in a moment as soon as a CO gets fired, but it can take years to overcome. So, uh, unfortunately, yes, that is the case. The squadron I was in... I don't know if I helped its downfall or helped to bring it up, um, but it, it it sucks when you're there, frankly. Hi there, what is the fastest you've been in a Hornet is the first question I see. Uh, the fastest I've been in a Hornet was Mach 1.6. It was carrying no extra fuel tanks or stores, not even any pylons to attach those stores, and I started up at about 45,000 feet, got to Mach 1.2 in full afterburner, and then pitched the nose down to about 45 degrees. and stayed in that attitude as long as I could stand it, and I think I saw Mach 1.6. I did hit Mach 1.93 in an F-16. That was a lot of fun as well. Uh, What is the most difficult adversary you've tackled? Well, probably when I was an adversary, tackling another F-18, frankly. But the F-22, when I was an adversary, I got to fight one of them, and that was pretty impressive. But from the Blue Air perspective, probably any of the advanced threats in the form of the flankers and some of the Chinese aircraft that are out there. And what's the deal with those canted out pylons on the Super Hornet? Great question. The story as I know it may or may not be true was that they in development were having some wing flutter problems and so the engineers decided that if they just canted the pylons out about four degrees that it took care of the wing flutter and hence the stress problem that they were having. And they swear up and down, the engineers in Boeing do, that it doesn't degrade performance. But we in the cockpit, we all know the difference. Once you start hanging big stores out there like fuel tanks and whatnot, it increases your drag and decreases your acceleration uh, quite noticeably. So apparently it was a stopgap band-aid measure. And unfortunately, now we have to live with it. Uh, From Tony S. Jello, would you choose the F-18 or F-16 to take in the battle? Uh, Tony, for me, the F-18, and that's because I have far more experience in that aircraft. I just know it better. If I were to today get called back and be asked to go into combat and they put me in an F-16, well, first off, it would take quite a bit of refresher training. But secondly, I just wouldn't be as comfortable because I don't have the depth of experience. And we're talking 3,300 hours in an F-18 versus about 170 hours in an F-16 So for me, uh, definitely a Hornet. If you took someone who spent maybe half their career in the Navy and then got out and went to the reserves and flew the F-16 and they flew the F-18 in the Navy, they probably would have a different question, a different answer, but for me, definitely the F-18. Griffin, when Hornet enters a, quote, falling leaf, the pilot must remove feet and hands from the controls. Does the flight control system move the controls to recover the aircraft or do they stay neutral? So good question, Griffin, just for everyone's background. The falling leaf, as the name implies, when you ever see a leaf fall off a tree, it kind of waddles back and forth on its way down. The F-18, because of its center of gravity and its flight controls and its dimensions, when it departs controlled flight, it used to be very prone to getting into a falling leaf type parameter. And I don't recall all the exact pitch differences and rate of descent. Etc. With recent, and by recent I mean the last 10 years or so, flight control software upgrades, the falling leaf is less likely. But if it does enter it, or if it did then, uh, Tony Griffin, excuse me, to answer your question, the flight controls would do what the computers felt was needed to get the aircraft out of that. So you might see the leading edge flaps extend to their maximum deflection. You might see the trailing edge flaps move up and down in the rudders. And at that point, you're along for the ride. Uh, But it used to be that we had certain procedures that we would do, for example, a stick full forward to help the aircraft if we were upright, stick aft if we were inverted. And that was, again, just trying to convince the flight computer, hey, this is what we think we need. But in reality, at that point, we're just a voting member. So great question, Griffin. From Richard, what's the G limit on the Hornet? Uh, 7.5. Does the fly-by-wire stop you overstressing the jet? No, it's supposed to, but there are different ways you can overstress the jet, and it's usually a bad thing when you do. One is a rolling pull. If you are literally turning and pulling at the same time, that can overstress the aircraft. Excuse me. Another is if you pull too quickly, a lot of times the G limiter cannot keep up with you, and that is how I once inadvertently pulled 8.4 Gs. And what's another way? If you are pulling, let's say, 7.5 and you inadvertently go through some wake turbulence or someone's jet wash, that quick spike in the air can also cause an overstress. So for the most part, the jet will save you. Sometimes if you ham-fist it, as we say, or fly through some environmental disturbances, you could end up overstressing. Hello, have you flown a Hornet with 8X or more AMRAAM? Uh No, I've not. I think the most I've ever carried was one. If so, did it struggle to acceleration when at or above Mach 1.0? So I can't answer that, but I would imagine it would just because of the parasite drag of air flowing by all those weapons. However, I can't imagine the total parasite drag is that much worse than three drop tanks and a couple stores. And I have flown in that configuration, and it just feels like a big waddling hippopotamus. So it didn't perform particularly well. You had to spend most of your time up at full power, even minimum afterburner to keep the aircraft with enough knots on it so that you didn't depart controlled flight if you made a turn. Uh, From David, did you consider traps as a terror experience? Uh, The first 10 or maybe even 20 or 30, David, yes, absolutely. But as I got more experienced, the day landings became actually kind of enjoyable and the night landings I never got used to. So I wouldn't say a terror experience, uh, the one exception being the time off of Western Australia in 2005, when the ship was moving uh, from neutral position up 20 feet and down 20 feet. That I decided that that much movement and night was pretty terrifying, and I was I was glad to be uh, back aboard after after that particular attempt, which th- didn't happen on the first time. My my first landing attempt, I missed the entire carrier. Uh, the second time I touched the carrier, but missed all the wires. And the third try, I finally got aboard. And when I walked into the ready room, everyone was sitting in there, all the other pilots watching danger TV, as we call it. And they all clapped and whistled and catcalled for me to welcome me back. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun, but no, not really. Uh, from Adam, Vincent, do Navy aviators generally regard themselves as superior to Air Force pilots because they have because they have the additional challenge of carrier takeoffs and landings? Adam, I won't speak for all. I presume that some do, but humility, as hopefully you've learned if you've watched any or listened to any of my podcasts, is a big part of what we do. So I, for one, would never look over my nose at an Air Force pilot uh, for reasons I've stated in previous interviews. And that is all the time that we spend learning and and preparing and training to land on a carrier, Air Force pilots can spend on tactics because their landings are very benign. So I by no means think of myself more highly than really any other pilot, let alone an Air Force pilot. But sure, some probably do, and they most likely have attitude problems elsewhere. So from George, in an F-18, what measures would you take if you detected a missile launch such as an S-400 against you? Well, George, that's a fairly easy question, but there's so much that's missing. So, you know, what theater am I in? Am I even over enemy territory, or all of a sudden am I getting shot at from somewhere that I thought was neutral or friendly? How fast am I going? What am I carrying, et cetera? But in general, the S-400, which we call something different, SA probably 10 or 20, I'm not sure, I don't remember, Uh, but it's an advanced, I'm sure, surface-to-air missile. And after taking a split second to clean my garments, I would probably uh, try to defend from that threat using expendables, chaffs and flares, uh, chaff and flares, as well as if it wasn't already turned on, maybe an onboard self-protection jammer. Uh, but all of those don't work if you don't maneuver the aircraft. So you have to hope that you have the, the necessary airspeed on the aircraft so that you can try to defend from it. And if you recall, if you listened to my interview with Willie Driscoll, from last episode that he was talking about. They got hit when they were slow, and any other time when they were fast, they were able to do a turn and defeat the surface-air missile coming at them. So in that case, uh, with enough knots, you can maneuver and hopefully try to defeat the missile tracking on you in the end game because it's just going so fast, you can't handle the turn as you do a last-minute or a last-ditch maneuver to try to defeat it. All right, from Marcel, did you have a chance to have a trip On the Super Hornet, yes, I have about 700 hours in the Super Hornet. Uh, Towards the end of my career, I flew it as much or more than the regular Hornet. So, yes, several several hundred hours in the Super Hornet. Uh, Marcel, if yes, how does it compare to the F-16 specifically, especially on turn capabilities? Um, So, Marcel, the Super Hornet is better in a slow speed dogfight than the F-16, but in a slow speed dogfight where the F 16 is allowed to get its energy back, which it can do very rapidly, then the F 16 would be at the advantage. So, two evenly matched pilots in a Super Hornet and an F 16 might end up in a neutral type, low energy, around the circle from each other type of fight, like two children on a uh, merry go round. But if one makes a mistake, or if one's slightly better than the other, either one could be. other aircraft on any given day just there's a lot that goes into it it's not a sure thing now that being said you take an f-16 or an f-18 and put it next to uh you know an aircraft maybe say as a tornado i don't mean to pick on it but it's not intended to dogfight really so you know that that one's going to be fairly lopsided every time it's not going to matter much the experience of the pilot all right tony vincent can you explain what life is like on the carrier when you aren't flying it's awful (laughs) Thanks for the question, Tony. I don't know how the people do it who aren't pilots. Um, Flying off a carrier when you're deployed is the only thing that makes it sane for those of us who enjoy flying. So it's, you know, if if we fly, let's say, five or six days and then we have a no-fly day, then generally that day gets filled in by meetings and safety updates and NATOPs briefs and various things. And the NATOPs is just the big blue pill. We call it a big blue sleeping pill. It's our four-inch thick manual that uh, has all the different procedures and emergency procedures that you might need to do and the systems and everything else. So we'll we'll do training to study for that. We will talk about what's going on in the theater we're about to enter. We might have other meetings just to handle day-to-day business. You might do some planning or training for something else. And then if you have a division, like, again, if you listen to Willie D., you know that he was in charge of corrosion. So in that case, he would go down to his shops and hang out with his guys and find out what's going on in their world just to be a good leader, which many of us, most of us tried to do. In the interview you had here at Air Korea Interview, you said a bunch of times you're an average fighter pilot. What do you think you didn't have compared to those you considered top pilots? Thanks, Rantam. You know, A lot of that is me, frankly, not liking to toot my own horn. So as a defense mechanism against my own ego, I like to say that I'm average. Uh, certain people who know me pretty well like to beat me up, including my wife. Uh, but you know, I, I would rather be too far that way than too far the other way. And that's just who I am. But I will say that certainly one thing that I did not have, the other pilots did, and I know plenty of them who did, was the natural ability to make things look easy. For example, landing on an aircraft carrier. So I had to work really hard at it. They have every so often a little grading celebration where they take the top 10 pilots in the whole air wing and they give them a special patch to put on their flight jackets. And some pilots will have a whole sleeve on their arm just lined up with top 10 patches. I have two. So I snuck in somehow later in my experience and was able to break into the top 10. But for the most part, I worked really hard and I just had sessions or or stages where it was easy for that particular period of time. But for the rest of the time, I I had to work at it. So certain people, just like in any endeavor, make things look easy. The rest of us have to work hard at it. And those of us like me who have to work hard at it, we call ourselves average. Griffin, rudders toe in on takeoff in the Hornet. Would there be a significant difference in takeoff performance if they did not? Significant? Sure. I don't know how significant. uh, But I know that the engineers put that in there for a reason and that is to assist with the nose pitch up at slow speeds as we are transitioning from flight to landing and from landing to flight on takeoff. So I've never had it not tow in on me, so I don't know what the difference is. But yes, the engineers put that there for a reason, and it does assist during those transitional phases of flight. Good question. From Mike V. Is it possible to do a low-speed high-away Cobra maneuver in a U.S. Navy F-18? Finnish F-18s are doing it now after a series of midlife updates. Looks great when you see it at an air show. Uh, Well, Mike, uh, Miko, rather, to be honest, I don't exactly remember what a Cobra maneuver is. I think it's where the nose pitches up very rapidly without the aircraft actually flying up and then going back in the direction it was going before. So we would call that an AOA excursion or an angle of attack excursion where you just reef back on the stick and make the aircraft nose point in a new direction, but you don't actually go in a new direction. So just real quickly, if anyone's not familiar, again, I'll be a good fighter pilot here and get out my hands. So if a car is driving on the road and we think of it like an aircraft, it has zero degree angle of attack. The nose and the road are pointing in the same direction. Taken to another extreme, if I'm flying down the road somehow, but I'm pointing straight up, then I am at 90 degrees of angle of attack. So I think what you're talking about is the ability to do some sort of maneuver like that without actually going in that direction. Uh, It looks cool at air shows. The tactical significance of it might be somewhat less, um, but it's not a maneuver I'm accustomed to in the F-18. So I wish I could give you a better answer than that. All right, Richard. E, the Rhino has some auto land capability on the carrier, I think. It does, so does the regular Hornet. But it's not hands-free, right? What do you know about Autoland capability on the F-35C? So for the last question, nothing. I have virtually no F-35C experience other than how to spell it. Um, both the Hornet and the Rhino do have a Mode 1, we call it. And actually, it is, Richard, hands-free. You could literally couple the aircraft, we use the word couple, couple it up, Or sync it up with the ship and engage the autopilot and the auto throttles. And it will take you all the way down hands free to a landing. The only thing you have to do is go to full power at the end in case you miss the wires. So uh, Paul, does the F-18 have any stealth capabilities or is it just jamming? Uh, No designed stealth capabilities in the regular f eighteen. Uh, We do have, again, some onboard self-protection jamming, and the EA-18G Growler is, of course, the electronic attack variant of the the F-18, and it does have jamming capability. Jason, what kind of advice can you give to someone who aims to become an Air Force pilot? Get ready to work your butt off. Do everything you can within your reach to give yourself the best chance to do it, Talk to those who are ahead of you to get whatever information you can on the syllabus and the material. Uh, Not me, I've been too far removed for too long, but someone who just went through a year or two ago. Put a smile on your face no matter what happens. Get ready to work hard, if I didn't already say that, and get ready to work hard because it is a labor of love, but it will consume you. Uh, I was dating my wife. We met right before I started flight school, and she stuck around with me for five years because I told her, I said, look, I'm right now married to flight school. This is something I have to do. Uh, Please hang out because I like you and you seem to like me. But right now I can't think about anything else. And we got married not long after I made it to the fleet. So I was glad she stuck around and we're still together 20 years later. But it 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 is a challenge. I would get in top physical shape. I would read and study as much as you can. Talk to people. Listen to the podcast. Hopefully I'll help you as well. And just be ready to do whatever it takes. So good luck to you. Uh, Jason let us know how it goes what did you think of the movie Top Gun and the sequel they're now about to film I love Top Gun I think it was a great movie I think it was brilliant that they interwove a love story in it because then when dates in the old days in the 80s you know took their girlfriends out to the movie the guy's happy and the girl's happy and still to this day the girls of course love the volleyball scene and everything else and I'm generalizing here but bear with me so I like the movie it's compelling I still enjoy watching it, um, although I haven't shown it to any of my kids, and so for some reason we haven't, so we need to get that scheduled up here some Saturday night when it's raining. Uh, The sequel. Don't know that much about it. I'm fearful because all they can do is go wrong in my book. Even if it's a great movie, the best they can do is break even. About the only sequel I ever liked better than the original was Terminator 2. Uh, From Toby, is there a difference in terms of creature comforts between the older and newer Nimitz carriers? Not really, Toby. They're all more or less the same. Uh, Some of them now have internet connections right there in your staterooms, which is great, but for the most part, they're all pretty much the same. The only difference that I ever noticed was on the John F. Kennedy, the older one that's now retired. I think they're making another one and giving it that name. But it was conventionally powered, and it was older and tired and worn out. And so that particular ship lacked a lot of the creature comforts. I can remember, no kidding, taking showers and suddenly smelling JP-5, which is the fuel we use, because sometimes the systems would leak into each other. So you'd get out of the shower smelling like fuel, which was never any good. And sometimes there was no water because the boiler went down. So what the John F. Kennedy lacked in creature comforts, it made up for in personality. I was on that ship. On December 31st, 1999, and if you were of age, you remember the big Y2K concern that they had. Well, we uh, we they had a big party up on the flight deck. They lowered a fake ball like in New York's Times Square that said 2000. And at the stroke of midnight, uh, the whole left or port side of the ship opened up. The uh, gunners had set up a bunch of 50 calibers and grenade launchers and pyrotechnics, and they let everybody up there and kept us safe with roped-off areas so we didn't fall off the ship. But at the stroke of midnight, they lit off for about two minutes of uh, shooting guns and grenades and everything. It was a lot of fun. And then, of course, we took January 1st off because we didn't know if Y2K was going to affect all our aircraft. But we tested them all out and flew just fine the next day. Okay, what do you think of the progress of the Russians, Chinese, and indeed the Brits regarding their carrier aviation? Uh, I, I don't really know anymore. I know when I was on active duty... There was a Russian carrier that got sold to the Chinese and they were trying to get it going. I've lost touch of where they are. But, you know, as long as we're not at a conflict with them, then, hey, more power to them. Uh, We can't tell them not to, and it's a difficult process. I wish them the best as far as figuring it out without too many mishaps because it is a dangerous pastime landing landing high-performance aircraft on ships at sea. Uh, As far as the Russians go, uh, I'm not sure, and the Brits I know have... Uh, jump jet flat decks with ramps, and as far as I know, they're doing fine, but if someone wants to tighten me up on the fact that they're trying to do something with catapults for fixed wing that aren't jump jump jets, then help me out. All right, Tony, do you ever land on the carrier with a crosswind component? Does the ship always have to steam into the wind? So, Tony, the ship attempts to steer into the wind the best it can. Once in a while, the ship will have no wind to work with, and so what it has to do is make its own wind. And because the landing area is 10 to 11 degrees canted from the axis of the ship, by definition, when the ship's making its own wind, there is about 11 degree crosswind of approximately 20 knots. So all that means is as you're coming down the groove, you just have to keep making small corrections to the right and you can stay on center line and it's not all that difficult. Occasionally, if the wind is blustery, then you'll get a little bit of a left crosswind or if we're in constrained waters, and we can't get the wind right down the angle of the ship, then we might have a slightly from left to right or port crosswind, and that's an issue as well. Thankfully, as you'll learn on future episodes that I'm working on right now of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we have fellow pilots that are out on the flight deck watching every single landing. They're called landing signal officers, or LSOs, and they will help us telling us what the winds are, and if we get out of alignment, they can, using standard terminology, get us back on centerline with a call for the left or to the right as required. Hi, I'm hoping to join the Royal Air Force. This is RJ. As a fast jet pilot, I wanted to ask you how much preparation did you do before you applied to the USA, USAF? Uh, RJ, I did not apply to the USA, USAF. I applied to the U.S. Navy and was blessed to have received a position there. So, uh, again, no denigration applied implied, excuse me, to my Air Force brethren. Somehow when I was in high school, I didn't know much, and I don't give myself credit for knowing much, but I knew I didn't want to join the Air Force. I I think they're a great service. I just didn't see myself as an Air Force person. I was one signature away from joining the Marine Corps, and I would have had a guaranteed slot in Marine Corps aviation, but I knew I didn't see myself as a Marine either, so I kept working at it until I got the Navy, and the rest worked out favorably for me. So uh, anyway, I just Uh, a bit of semantics there on your question. I apologize. Um, I wanted to, so how much preparation did I do? Uh, so we just talked about that. I did as much as I recommended the other fella do. I learned as much as I could. I asked questions. I got myself in top physical shape and I worked hard at everything I did because it comes down to performance. Jonathan, what is the strobe light on the front gear of the super hornet? Jonathan, when the super hornet showed up at the fleet, in the daytime, those landing signal officers I just told you about, what they'll do is as they're standing, let's say I'm looking that way at the at the um, next aircraft to land, well, there's someone who is also looking over here because the aircraft turned in a 180 degree turn at the last second for what the next aircraft is because we have to set the resistance on the arresting gear correctly to know what's gonna land and how heavy it is. So when the Super Hornet came out and it weighs more than the Hornet, If we didn't set it correctly, we would break the landing gear when the jet landed and possibly kill someone or crash an airplane. So they put that strobe on so that in the daytime when we look out and see what the next aircraft is, that they know it's a Super Hornet and so they can set the the arresting gear for that heavier aircraft. That light does not come on at night because at night we use communications and there's a different strobe light on the tail to let the landing signal officers and everybody else know what's coming down the chute. John, there was an update to the flight controls for the Legacy Hornet that improved the high-alpha limit of the jet. It didn't improve the high-alpha limit. It was still 35 degrees, and it, I think mainly, uh, John, unless I'm missing the point of your question, it made the jet less susceptible to departing controlled flight, which early on, I had several uh, do that to me. You'd roll and pull one way, and some forces would build up, and suddenly the jet would flip over on you and go the other way, and Unfortunately, we did lose some aircraft that way, even while I was at Top Gun in the 2000s. But for the most part now, they've, they've fixed that problem. That's a good thing. Uh, Rune says, greetings from Denmark. Thanks, Rune. I'm half Danish. Have you ever flown at an air show? Yes, I have. A couple times. Once in, let's see, once in Jacksonville, Florida, and once in Fallon, Nevada. I was never the solo act. I was always part of like an air power demonstration where we simulate attacking the field or doing other parts of the show. Uh, and I will tell you real quickly, uh, two things that happened when I did the air show in Fallon, Nevada, about an hour east of Reno. On the same flight, two things stuck in my mind I'll never forget. One was I was flying with a good friend of mine, uh, goes by the call sign Bull, and we were doing a high-speed pass for one particular part. And if you have ever seen, there's a picture, in fact, I had it on Facebook on my uh, one of my feeds recently. There's a picture of a friend of mine, Semi, named because he was semi-sonic when they took the picture, where a cloud enveloped his F-18 as he was nearing the carrier for a high-speed flyby. And it's just this diamond-shaped cloud all around his aircraft. Because he was over the ocean at the time, there was enough moisture in the air that the shockwave of being transonic condensed the water out of the air and basically just formed a cloud right then and there. Well, the high desert of Fallon is too arid to create that. But as I looked over at Bull uh, on this particular flight as we were going by, because I was the wingman, so I was trying to keep in the right formation with him, I realized that he had that very same shockwave around the middle of his aircraft, and instead of a cloud, it was distorting the light. The, The light was refracted through that diamond shape on top of his aircraft, and it made everything in the background just look different, but there was no cloud. And it just burned into my mind. I'll never forget it. And then it was either that pass or a pass very close to that where we were flying over and they were setting off some demolition pyrotechnics as if we had dropped them. And they set them off right as we went by. And again, I'll never forget this. So when we wear, you've seen pictures of pilots. We have our mask and we have our visor and we have our helmet. Well, there's a little bit of skin that is exposed on your cheek. And in that instant, I felt the heat from the pyrotechnics right here on the side of my face. How it, I don't know that much about thermodynamics, but how it traveled that quickly through the cockpit and onto my skin, and for me to interpret the sensation just still boggles my mind, but I'll never forget it. It was pretty cool. What is the difference between the F 18, asks Paul, and the F 18 Growler? So, Paul, it's the EA 18, so it doesn't have the letter F in it, but it was taken from, essentially, the F-A-18F two-seat Rhino or Super Hornet. So what they did was they took off the wingtip launcher rails and added some jammer pods. They increased the size of the multi-purpose functional display in the backseat for the ECMO instead of Wizzo, electronic countermeasures officer instead of weapons systems officer. Um, and there are a few other differences that I'm not completely familiar with. I never had a chance to fly the Growler. But it's mostly, for simplicity, and and some who fly the two will probably correct me, but for the most part, Super Hornet two-seater that's been modified for electronic attack. So Chuck asks, what was your longest single flight in a Hornet and how sore were you after it? Uh, Chuck, that was over Iraq and it was probably about six and a half hours and you get a little sore. You, uh, you've you got the G-suit. If you remember from that one episode, you can push the button to massage your legs a little bit, but when you get out of that, you're, you're definitely sore because you can't get up while you're in a seat for that long. And it was probably more like seven hours because you have to start up 30 minutes prior, and then after you land, you move around on the flight deck until they get you done. All right. Ryan asks, how often do pilots refer to the F-18EF as Super Hornet versus Rhino? Is it often? Yeah, they're interchangeable. Ryan, we just whatever comes to mind. At the ship, we will use Rhino. We don't use the word Super Hornet there. Uh, For example, on night landings, we'll talk about all that on upcoming episodes, but for the most part, we just call it the Rhino. If you went head-to-head with an SU-30 and an F-18, what would your tactics be? Uh, Paul, great question. My tactics would be take the first shot before getting shot. Uh, I know that's not what you're asking, but I don't want to really go into much more than that. Jonathan asks, did you ever want to be XOCO? Yes, I did, Jonathan. Unfortunately, that was not in the cards for me. Uh, the Navy had other needs and didn't align with mine, so I did my best in the other capacities that I could, but no, my services were never required as an XOCO. Appreciate the great questions, everybody. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. This is why I do it, because I know there's people out there who enjoy it, and I enjoy sharing. i served freedom-loving people in the United States and all over the world for 25 years. And for me, this is another way to serve. And so I'm appreciative of the fact that people respect this and enjoy it. So I'll keep doing it. Uh, my website is fighterpilotpodcast.com. It's all one word. Uh, the show can be found anywhere. You can find podcasts. That's on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. And we have a Facebook profile or page, I should say. We have Twitter. We have Instagram. We're all over the place. Uh, email is questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. And we have a listener line. It's in the U.S. It's 877-MACH, M-A-C-H, 101. That's 877 So by all means, reach out to us. Say hello. Ask a question. You might hear it on the show. And with that, again, I want to thank you. And Mike, I'll stand by here for a second. I'll unmute and see if you got anything else.